It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I've got 42 different angles on President Biden's State of the Union. Don't worry, you'll be well covered on this, including some that maybe you haven't considered. I uh, had a column up that went up about 10.30 Eastern last night on the speech, doing it in real time, which I think is the way to do it. Um, but let's have a little fun first. CNN's morning show, uh, the new morning show, uh, has been struggling. It's no secret the ratings have been awful. And remember, Don Lemon uh, was taken out of prime time. He was going to be less opinionated, less openly liberal. But now that seems to be changing a little bit. So on yesterday morning's show, they were doing an interview with Republican Congressman James Comer, who is the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. And they're having actually a hearing today on Hunter Biden, which I'm sure will be uh, significant news. And many media people will have a lot to say about it, pro and con. So... They finished it, and just as uh, the interview was almost over, Comer mentioned the New York Post, which first ran the Biden laptop story back in 2020. And the music began to play to go to break. And Don Lemon was like, hold on with the music, please. He doesn't want to go to break. He said, there's no shared reality with somebody like Congressman Comer. American people are going to have to suffer through all this stuff from election deniers to people who don't believe in facts. We don't have a shared reality. And now it's taken center stage. So... First of all, this is a very odd argument for Don Lemon to make because while the New York Post was first and widely criticized, it was right. The New York Times says so. The Washington Post says so. CNN says so. CNN had a report last year saying the material from the laptop has been confirmed. So why did he go off on that? But I'm thinking, because there's another thing that he went off on, um, That maybe this is not just, you know, Don Lemon being emotional or he can't help himself. That maybe because they just bounced the executive producer to another show and bringing in a new EP, uh, that maybe they want Lemon to stir it up a little bit more, to be a little bit more openly liberal, as he was at 10 o'clock at night. Just a theory I'm throwing out there. All right. Meanwhile, a member of uh, Biden's cabinet is leaving Marty Walsh, the labor secretary, um, Politico says, according to sources, that he is uh, out. Uh, he is going to become, this sounds like a pretty cushy and I'm sure well-paying job, the head of the National Hockey League Players Association. He run the NHL union. So last night, you know, when you have the State of the Union, there's always a designated survivor, which means one member of the cabinet doesn't go to the speech just in case, you know, there's a, a bomb blows up or something like that. And who was it? Marty Walsh. You would think, you know, this is his last week or two. They would let him go to the State of the Union. But no, it's like, you're out of here, dude. You're going to go play uh, with a hockey league. Uh, Forget about it. You can't get a ticket. (laughs) Okay, big sports news. LeBron, LeBron James, breaking uh, what was once considered an unbreakable record. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time scoring record in the NBA. And as he got closer and closer, you know, the watch has been on. And so yesterday, in a loss to the Oklahoma City Thunder, LeBron James uh, broke the record, which was 38,387 points 
which just you have to have incredible consistency over like a 20 year season, 20 seasons to be able to even come close. It's not like, you know, the equivalent of uh, hitting a lot of home runs one year or being the leading scorer one year or even, you know, scoring 100 points in a game as Will Chamberlain did. You got to be really consistent. I've never, I respect LeBron James as an athlete. I've never really warmed to him because I think he's not a warm and fuzzy guy. Kareem, meanwhile, has gone on to a whole career of punditry, writes columns for Time Magazine and so forth. Anyway, he gave a rather clinical uh, description, I guess he had thought about what, how he would break the record. He said, I was able to get to a good spot and to get to one of my patented fadeaway shots. A lot of people wanted me to go to the sky hook to break the record or one of my signature dunks, but my fadeaway is a signature play as well. I was able to get it, nothing but net. And he, uh, they stopped the game and there was a ceremony and look, it's quite an incredible feat. Uh, Michael Jackson's estate, according to Variety, uh, is in the process of selling half of his music catalog. The deal, according to these sources, would be $800 to $900 million. Um, And that would include MJ the Musical Broadway show, and there's a biopic coming up. So you could see where it'd be pretty attractive, but it's amazing how, especially, I mean, unfortunately, the case of Michael Jackson, he's not around, but how so many of these uh, aging artists, David Crosby did it before his death, you know, selling their catalogs, the rights to their songs, um, which, you know, I, it's hard, it would have been hard for me to imagine in, let's say, you know, 1969, um, the writer's catalog, with a few possible exceptions, being worth so much money. You know, I wanted to get to this yesterday. Um, the death toll that keeps rising from this terrifying earthquake in Turkey and parts of Syria. Now 11,000 people. That's almost like four 9-11s on one day. And when I looked at some of the video, and I've, you know, we've had a lot of earthquakes in California. Um, it's not like I'm not familiar with it, but you could just see some of these buildings just collapse instantly like a house of cards. I guess they don't have much to do with strict building codes, at least in the footage that I was seeing. It is heartbreaking. It's hard to wrap your head around the idea that so many people died from a single event. Uh, So there's a lot of effort now, obviously, to get relief there, but the relief crews are hampered by extreme cold. Um, I wanted to mention something I saw in media as we ease into the State of the Union business and some other good things as well. Um, And this is the pattern now. MSNBC doesn't cover big events, convention, or particularly a State of the Union speech uh, as a news network. It covers it as a liberal opinion network. So leading the coverage was Rachel Maddow, Joy Reid, and Nicole Wallace. And I heard one of them last night, I think it was Joy. It was hard to tell because they weren't on screen. They were showing pictures of uh, Biden shaking hands in the crowd for a long time. By the way, he was obviously enjoying himself. Some people suggested he was doing that to delay the networks carrying the response from Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Anyway, so one of the people, I think it was Joy, said of the Republican Party, uh, the the madmen are now running the asylum. So it was just beat up on the Republicans, greatest speech of all time by Joe Biden. Fox... It was anchored by Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. CNN, anchored by Jake Tapper. 
and Anderson Cooper. So you got to make a decision. You're either going to, for big news events, you're going to have journalists or not. Now, there have been times when Fox has made decisions I didn't agree on. For example, not carrying the two primetime hearings of the January 6th committee, but carried all the rest of them, the ones that were on in, in daytime. Anyway, let's get into story number one. Um, so what I said in my column was, it was kind of a predictable speech in that he went through a whole laundry list of accomplishments, and he does have accomplishments, major bipartisan legislation uh, that has passed. And also, um, he didn't come up with any brand new sweeping proposals for the next two years because he's got a Republican House to deal with. But although he tried to emphasize bipartisanship, and the one thing he did emphasize, and it was a very well-delivered speech by Joe Biden. A lot of people saying the best speech they've ever seen him give. That might be true. He was forceful. He was energized. He wasn't coughing or rubbing his nose or losing his place. I mean, he, he dropped some words and he slurred some words. He's never been a great orator. But you got to give him that. I mean, he obviously practiced the speech and delivered it well. But it was a, he, kept, he used the phrase blue-collar blueprint. He was trying to speak to people who feel left out by this economy. And I don't know this for a fact, but every year usually the president, Trump did it, Bush did it, Clinton did it, Obama did it, meet off the record with um, the Washington bureau chiefs and top anchors um, over lunch before the speech. And I started hearing pundits say on the air, well, Biden wants to speak to the people who are unseen, who feel invisible. And I'm guessing that came from, if not a White House aide, from the president himself. Usually you use this and it's not attributed. Um, another thing that struck me as he went through, you know, he was trying to strike this balance. And the balance was, I'm reaching out to the other party. I've worked with the other party. Let's work together and finish the job. Well, first of all, the Republicans don't want to finish the job. They want to finish him off. <laughs> but he made a lot of bows in that direction. And I'll get into more of that in a second. But what also struck me, you know, he would talk about things like a cancer moonshot um, and some other big ticket items. And he devoted one or two sentences to abortion. He said, if the Republicans try to pass a national ban on abortion, I will veto it. Well, that was a play to his base. And in reality, this is going to be fought out in the states. He's never going to have to veto it because the Democratic Senate is never going to pass it. But he also did a lot of small ball things. And I remember when I was writing my book on the Clinton White House spin cycle, uh, and Rahm Emanuel told me that Clinton at that time would do a lot of small initiatives. Uh, just to give you the sense of how long ago this is, um, he wanted to put a V-chip in new television so that parents could block their kids from watching shows they thought were inappropriate, things like that. And Rom said to me, you know, even though it doesn't get all that much publicity when the president makes a speech on it or mentions it in a speech, people find out about it. They find it somehow. That's one of the things Biden was doing. I mean, you could, you could ridicule it as being, you know, below the level of a state of the union. But he talked about, you know, how annoying it is uh, to have to pay $200 to change your cell phone carrier, how annoying it is, uh, how unfair it is for you to be charged 
extra to change your seat on an airline so you could sit with your kids. Uh, things like that. And I, th I think that, you know, that's the kind of thing it, it reaches people at home. Yeah, that's unfair. That shouldn't be allowed. Even though in the context of the entire country and the world, it, it's pretty small. Uh, Biden talked about, you know, breaking COVID's grip. And when he took office, you know, 3,000 people a day were dying from the disease. Um, but what, what equally struck me was... As, as much as Democrats loved the speech, and as much as Republicans mostly didn't, there was some Republican applause for some initiatives. Um, the one emotional high point was when the president introduced the parents of Tyree Nichols and said there were no words to describe the heartbreaking grief of losing a child and then called for police reform, uh, which also was a way of showing that he was never able to get a police reform bill, and then said... Let's have an assault weapons ban. And that will, he couldn't get it passed when he controlled both houses of Congress. He's not going to get it passed with a Republican House. So it's a good applause line. And that's about it. Um, what was also striking, because there was a lot of punditry before the speech, it turned out to be wrong, really, about how he had the White House speechwriters were making changes and he was going to stand up to China and he was going to talk about the Chinese spy balloon and so forth. Well, what he actually did was blow it off in about a sentence. First, he talked about the importance of, you know, both competing with, but in some ways cooperating with China. And then came this line where Biden said, but make no mistake, as we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. He didn't use the word balloon, and he didn't address why he waited uh, eight days, you know, on the advice of the military, as I've said, to uh, make sure it was shot down over water. President also talked about the heinous attack on Paul Pelosi, uh, Nancy's husband, who was there, looking pretty good, wearing a hat. There was a lot of uh, chatter about Jill Biden kissing Doug Emhoff, Kamala Harris's husband. I guess this wasn't planned, but it was kind of a full kiss on the lips. I just mention it because it's become a meme out there. Uh, Biden closed the speech by talking about January 6th and the big lie. Um, but what the, probably the most interesting thing about the speech, before I get to a couple of the reviews, is that he ended up getting heckled. And Kevin McCarthy did not want that. And at various times, you could see Kevin McCarthy trying to shush some of his Republicans. And the one who um, most frequently went after the president was Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I can't defend that because I think you show respect for the office. Let the president give his speech, and then you can talk about it for the next 23 hours. Um, but Biden was able to parry that pretty effectively, um, particularly when he started to say um, that some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. Now, the reality is most Republicans don't want that. Also, this was also a bit of a hoked-up thing because Kevin McCarthy had already said publicly, we will take any action on Medicare or Social Security off the table until we get a debt ceiling bill. So he'd already won that battle, but most people don't know that. So Biden was referring to a proposal 
by Senator Rick Scott that would uh, sunset it, I guess, every five years and have to be renewed. Well, you know, older Americans don't want to hear that, right? So immediately, that's when a lot of the um, yelling started. That's not true. That's not true. And Biden said, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. Now, so both parties play this game. You take what might be considered the most controversial, most extreme uh, position by one of the members on the other side, even though it doesn't have majority support, and you say, they want to do this terrible thing and throw grandma off the cliff. And the Democrats have done that, and the Republicans have done that. But Biden said, okay, well, if you're saying that's not the position of the party, so folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security, Medicare is off the books right now, all right? We've got unanimity. He did it in a kind of a mocking tone, sarcastic, like take the win, okay? You can tell me that's not the position of the Republican Party, then take it off the table. You know, one of the things about this, what made the speech good was that Biden was clearly enjoying himself, even in, in, with the heckling. Uh, CNN poll says 72% had a positive reaction, but because people tend to watch presidents give these speeches that they like, uh, the sample was about 8% more Democratic than it would otherwise have been. Now, um, New York Times, nearly a dozen times, he bragged about his administration's accomplishments on keeping drug prices low, increasing taxes on the wealthy, making childcare and housing affordable, and more, but said he had more to do. Uh, so he kept talking about infrastructure. And then there was another point where he kind of tweaked the GOP opposition. He said that a lot of Republicans who voted against their infrastructure bill, which was bipartisan and included support from Mitch McConnell, they now want projects funded by the law built in their districts. And he very quickly said, and don't worry, I ran to be president of all the people. We will fund projects across the country, and I'll see you at the dedication ceremony. So that was clever. It was a way of kind of sticking it to the Republicans who didn't go along, but now want the federal money. But again, that's hardly unprecedented. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so John Harrison Politico says there was, you know, it talked about the heckling. There were shouts of liar uh, over the Social Security business. Uh, he sought to present himself as a common-sense realist in touch with everyday concerns of voters, inviting the opposition to choose between joining him to solve problems or risk being portrayed as obstructionist and extremist. Now, as Harris points out, it was back in 2009 when President Obama's speech to Congress was inter interrupted by Republican Congressman Joe Wilson, who shouted, you lie. This created such an uproar that many Republicans were embarrassed and Wilson apologized. But now, according to the count of a political reporter, Marjorie Taylor Greene shouted out at least nine times that Biden was a liar uh, and that this was kind of a gift to Biden because he got to play off it. But again, I, I don't think that's what Kevin McCarthy wanted. 
And I believe in showing respect to the office. Now, I think somebody somehow got a hold of Donald Trump's phone because he made this video, it was actually pre-taped before the speech, in which he just went off, the country's falling apart, we're being overrun by millions of illegal immigrants, Biden has brought us to the brink of World War III, he is the most corrupt president in American history by far. I mean, this was just throwing out all of this red meat. But then, after the video, there was a posting. Doesn't sound like Donald Trump, but he said, look, he worked hard tonight. It's not a natural thing for him. Never was. Never will be. But you got to give him credit for trying. I disagree with him on most of his policies, but he put into words what he felt and ended up the evening far stronger than he began. Give him credit for that. I've never heard Donald Trump say anything like that about any of his political opponents. Uh, maybe he felt the need to balance a little bit the harshness of the video. Number two, the dust-up between Mitt Romney and George Santos. So Santos was right in the middle of the chamber. You know, people wait hours to get at those uh, aisle seats so they can shake the president's hand and get a little camera time. And Mitt goes over to him and says, you don't belong here. And Santos's response was, go tell that to the 142,000 people who voted for me. Mitt, you're an ass. Santos, you're a much bigger asshole. And then, you know, uh, Mitt Romney is walking through the rotunda trail by a whole bunch of reporters. And he's talking about this. And he just goes on and on. He says, I don't think you ought to be in Congress. And you certainly shouldn't be in the aisle. Try to shake the hand of the President of the United States and dignitaries coming in. It's an embarrassment. If he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there. So that was fun. Uh, I mentioned uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the former Trump press secretary, who gave the response for the GOP, newly elected governor. Father, of course, was governor. Of course, she was Donald Trump's press secretary. And yet, um, didn't mention Trump by name in her response, and at one point talked about a new generation of leaders for the GOP, of which I guess she's one. No question about that. But you would think that she wouldn't necessarily send that particular signal since her former boss is, you know, at least as of now, the front runner for the Republican nomination. So Governor Huckabee Sanders talked about woke fantasy. She said, most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace, but we are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. And she went on to say that um, the dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. And needless to say, that got a lot of attention. Number three, Charles Cook of National Review, not a fan of Joe Biden, also not a fan of Donald Trump. And he writes with this uh, British fervor. What's the right word? Uh, he... He knows how to eviscerate people, but in a, in a very high-toned accent. So he had a piece in National Review saying of Biden, if Republicans don't get their act together, he's going to get away with it. Looked at objectively, Joe Biden's presidency has been a disaster. He, the guy's a fraud, a liar, and a crank. He disrespects his oath of, oath of office, uh, refuses to engage with the public at anything approaching a normal rate. His mind is slow. His speech is meandering. His grasp of the topic at hand ranges from tenuous to non-existent. Okay, we get it. You don't think much of Joe Biden or his presidency. Uh, I am told it is mean to say such things. Perhaps it is. 
but I'm not the only one who has noticed that Biden's lost a step. Well, obviously, the country has noticed that as well. And you see that showing up in the polls. Um, and, and, and then he goes on to say that because the Democrats have, won, have lost so many races at the congressional and state levels, they don't have a much of a bench. And therefore, in comparison to any alternatives, Biden is the best of the bunch. And deep down, he knows it. In a normal political environment, says Cook, Biden would already be a lame duck. But we don't live in such an environment. We live in an environment which, despite having tried to stage a coup, Donald Trump is considered a viable candidate for the Republican nomination. Uh, he goes on to say that ultimately politics comes down to a simple question. As opposed to what? And however unsuited to the role of President of the United States, Joe Biden might have now proven himself to be, it does not follow automatically the Republican alternative will be more desirable. Um, twice now, Biden has won by default. I guess he's saying the primary, yeah, the primaries in 2020, where he rescued his candidacy in South Carolina, and the winning uh, the 2020 election, which, of course, Donald Trump still says was rigged. Every right-leaning person in America should be laser-focused on ensuring that he doesn't sleepwalk his way to a third victory, which I guess Cook is suggesting that the opponent should be somebody other than the former president. Uh, story four, Ron DeSantis. And, you know, a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in the Republican Party think DeSantis is the best person to knock off Donald Trump. But, of course, as I always say, he remains untested on the national stage. Here's what he was doing yesterday. Going after the media. Sounds familiar. He held a roundtable discussion with media libel law experts and critics, kind of set up like a cable show. Um, the governor was seated behind a desk with the word truth displayed on the screen behind him. One of the people on the panel was Nick Sandman, that former Kentucky high school student who sued media companies and won a bunch of settlements over a viral social media video uh, that portrayed him in an unfair light. Remember, he was a guy wearing a Trump MAGA hat, and he was portrayed as having started a confrontation with an Indian activist when, in fact, he was the one keeping his cool. Uh, DeSantis, the idea that they would create narratives that are contrary to discovering facts, I don't know that was the standard. Now it seems you pursue the narrative, you're trying to advance the narrative, trying to get the clicks, and fact-checking and contrary facts has just fallen by the wayside. Well, the governor's critics would say that he uh, often ignores facts, but that's the nature of politics. Uh, this piece in Politico says that DeSantis has had a long, contentious relationship with the media, rarely gives interview to major outlets, regularly blasts places like CNN. His former secretary was, a press secretary, I should say, was well-known for singling out reporters on Twitter and ridiculing them. Here's another thing that DeSantis said that I could see resonating uh, with GOP primary voters. Um, when the media attacks me, I have a platform to fight back. When they attack everyday citizens, these citizens don't have adequate resources or recourses to fight back. It would contribute to an increase in ethics in the media and everything if they knew that if you smeared somebody, it's false, and you didn't do your homework, then you have to be accountable for that. I would say that is, is true for public figures. It is very, very, very difficult for somebody who's already prominent 
under the New York Times 1964 uh, Times versus Sullivan case uh, to win because you have to show malice and reckless disregard for the truth. But we do have libel laws in this country, and if the average person is smeared, that person can sue, and that person is not already a public figure, um, then you see if a, the court system can be convinced. Uh, here's the Sandman saying, in my case, I didn't have a reputation to ruin. I hadn't started any sort of professional career. I hadn't even started my life. But they predetermined how that would happen. Hmm. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, folks, let's wrap things up with some tech talk in story number five. Top executives uh, and engineers from Microsoft and this company OpenAI, which you've been hearing so much about because it is behind the chatbot called ChatGPT, uh, have just unveiled a new search engine and browser that uses artificial intelligence, which is, according to what everybody is saying, you know, the next big thing. So, you know, mostly, let's say you go on Google. You know, it, obviously, it's been a tremendous search engine, except I think it's been compromised lately because there's all this sponsored crap at the top. That's not what you're looking for, but that's how Google, it's in part how Google makes its money. And keep in mind, the Biden administration suing Google on antitrust grounds for monopolizing the search space. But this could be uh, a game changer. So Microsoft was an early investor in chat GPT. And you've read about, I've talked about, you know, how it can write high school essays. It can write a monologue that you can read on TV. It can write poetry. It can do lots of things. I mean, it has its limitations. It's really, really smart and also kind of dumb. And it can only... Um, react to information that's been fed by humans because that's its database. But in any event, Microsoft has this Bing search engine and it's way number two to Google. But if this AI is what it's cracked up to be, um, Microsoft could sort of get back in the game. Uh, so there was, I guess, a, an event yesterday and the vice president of Microsoft um, was uh, you was was able to ask for a 65-inch TV that could play video games, and the service listed a bunch of televisions. He asked it to pair the list down to the cheapest model, and it quickly did that. He then used the chatbot to plan a Mexican vacation, and research Japanese poets with a short query. He could ask the system to translate results from Spanish to English, or show a particular haiku poem. Are you blanking kidding me? So this vice president, by the name of Mehdi, said this is just so much better than today's search. Um, so it could revive Bing. Uh, they could put out a new web browser with a different name. And look, if it's the kind of thing where you can just talk to it and get it more quickly through conversation to find stuff in ways that Google doesn't, this could really change things. And maybe this time it's Google gets left, gets left behind. And Google annihilated all the search engines of the era when it became, uh, was on fire. Yahoo and a bunch of others. Ones that you don't even remember anymore. They don't exist. Alta Vista. A related tech item from the world of Twitter. 
Republican Senator Steve Daines, he is from the state of Montana, had his Twitter account suspended, but Elon Musk stepped in and restored it. So what was Senator Daines' great um, sin here? The profile photo on his account was he and his wife grinning while they were out hunting and he lifted the bloody head of an antelope they had killed. Musk reached out to him and acted quickly, Dane said. The initial ban of the profile photo of my wife and me after a successful Montana antelope hunt was disappointing given the fact that it's no different than photos Montanans share on social media every day. It's our Montana way of life, and we are proud of it. I am glad Elon Musk recognizes this. Look, I don't have any problem with people posting pictures of themselves hunting. You know, holding up the bloody head obviously is going to turn a lot of people off. Apparently, uh, when, when the suspension was made, uh, there was a link to a Twitter policy that bans posts, quote, that depicts excessively graphic or gruesome content related to death or animal torture or killing. So Twitter does have a rule about that, but um, it didn't play well. And uh, some other lawmakers, Republicans like Senator Mike Rounds, posted their own hunting photos with dead animals. Uh, And look, if this had been, well, it probably wouldn't have come to anybody's attention if it hadn't been a United States senator. Uh, Musk realized that, you know, this would alienate a lot of potential people who use Twitter. And he fixed the problem. But I guess the other problem is Twitter has a rule about not showing anything relating to animal torture or killing. So to be consistent, to be logical, Musk would have to change that rule. And, you know, like a lot of these things, it's like, where do you draw the line? A lot of people are going to find different things offensive. uh, And others are um, going to think it's great. That's why it's not rocket science running Twitter. It's harder. You've got all of these conflicting desires and demands. And, you know, Musk seems to be, remember he was going to give up the CEO job, but he seems to still be the chief twit trying to resolve these various things. Well, really appreciated the chance to spend this time with you, whether you watched the speech or not. Uh, I think it's going to make news for a couple of days, and I think it's going to fade. I think, like a lot of State of the Union speeches, this is not unique to Joe Biden. Um, It gets hotly debated for about 48 hours, and unless there's some super controversial proposal or moment, it fades and we're on to something else, the next balloon, so to speak. Uh, Hope you'll subscribe if you're not already getting this podcast. Apple iTunes is a good place to do it. You don't get the ads. And we will see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.